I'm so happy to see you all this morning um, here today with us to start a new sermon series, as Pastor Jess just said, Habits of Grace, Rhythms That Sustain and Transform Us. Uh, throughout this sermon series, we are going to be taking a look at concepts uh, that bring us closer to God, like prayer, uh, focusing on hearing from God, loving others, and also being open to the ways in which God yearns to lead us. Uh, so we're not zoning in on spiritual disciplines specifically themselves, but focusing on concepts throughout Scripture that bring people closer to God and transform their lives, and so those people can help transform the lives of those around them. And so today we're going to start, and we're going to start with worship. Why worship? Because worship sets us up to pray fervently. It puts us in a posture to hear from the Lord. It pushes our hearts to be open to whatever he wants to do in our lives. It encourages us to relinquish the plans we had and give God the rightful spot as first within our hearts. And then it makes us unable to keep what God is doing in us to ourselves. And so we share it because we absolutely cannot help not to. Worship. So today I'm going to focus on why we do it and what happens to us when we do it. So let's quickly pray and then we'll get into it. Lord, we thank you for meeting us in this space. We thank you so much that you delight in us. We thank you that you delight in the ways in which we love you. You don't need anything from us, Lord, but you take so much delight in the fact that your children want to be with you and sit with you. And Lord, I pray that as I speak today, that love comes through. Your love for each and every one of us that pulls us in closer. Let every heart be open to what you want to do in each individual life this morning, Lord. We trust you and we love you. Amen. Okay, so this guy, first slide, when it comes, we'll get there. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. Thus a picture, at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshippers, threatened to appear in my mind. Clive Staples Lewis said that. Not a really strong and supportive view of worship. A threatening view of worship. He was not into it at all. But then, he became this guy. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of a compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In the same way, we delight to praise God because our praise of Him not merely expresses, but it completes our enjoyment. He shifted. That's a completely different perspective of praise and worship. And now I have a feeling that some of us resonate with that first quote, perhaps a little more than we'd like to, and not because we want to, and perhaps not because we even have a negative feeling about God, but because the concept of worship is odd to us, right? The very idea is unsettling and confusing. I still remember as a child when 
I was in church and I first heard people speaking in tongues of worship to God and I was like, oh my, what is happening? And how do I get out of here? Right? But what was happening? What do we mean when we say worship as it relates to God? What was C.S. Lewis initially so afraid of and put off by in regard to worship? Well, what is worship? Directly translated from the Hebrew, uh, worship means uh, to bow down, to even lay flat on the ground. And from the Greek, the word means to kiss the hand, to fall on the knees, to pay homage. And even from Old English, worship means worthiness, worth to something. So if all of those things put together, one worship definition could be bowing down and paying homage to something that is worthy. There are many different ways of describing worship. But for me, the definition that makes the most sense and is the best way to encapsulate every definition of worship I've ever seen is simply this. Worship means putting God first. Bowing down and paying homage to something that is worthy. Putting him first in every aspect. And that and every other definition of worship is much easier said than done. Because just like love, the concept of worship is simple, but the action of worship is not easy. And the not easy part is completely based on human brokenness. And I think it's partially because of the residual impacts from our spiritual ancestors. If you go back to the Old Testament, it tells us that our human bodies could not even stand to see God or else we would perish, basically. His glory was too much. So that when the Ten Commandments came down, they couldn't be given directly from God to the people. They needed to be given through Moses. Because the people couldn't even see the Lord. It would be too much. So just like every other piece of God within the Old Testament, worship needed a connector. And we see this play out in the first act of worship with Abraham. Uh, People used to sacrifice, another connector was an animal. People used to sacrifice animals in order to show God how much they loved him. That was the connector. And... Then there was an opportunity for Abraham to obey God. And God said, instead of an animal, I want you to sacrifice your son. For those of you who don't know the story, the son lives. But, but, the purpose was a connector was needed. We needed to connect a holy God with a broken human. And even later on, as Moses is leaving, leading people out of Egypt... When it's time to connect with God, it's only through Moses. So it wasn't just for the Ten Commandments. When he had to connect with God, he went to a tent. That's where he convened with God. That's where he communed. He had to go away from the people. And Ezekiel 46 outlines a really good example of a type of way in which people had to worship and all of the rules. And we're not going to read it because it's too long. There are too many rules. There are too many connectors needed to worship God. Intimate worship was reserved only for the high priest and priestesses. And overall, worship was reserved for the temple, a physical place. The Old Testament consisted of a place of worship instead of a state of worship. But our Jesus, our Jesus then came to push the holy space beyond the temple walls and into our hearts. We see his desire for true worship played out as he meets a Samaritan woman at the well uh, in John chapter 4. 
In that chapter, we see a woman come up to a well, and Jesus is there. She was a Samaritan woman who was doing a very standard activity of gathering water from a well. She was doing it by herself, which most likely meant that she didn't have many friends, because usually that's where women convene together to hang out, perhaps gossip, talk about their husbands. And, and she went by herself. So Jesus sees her there, and it's odd, too, that he goes to approach her because she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew, and they didn't talk. Jews were still of the idea that they were the only chosen people, and so they kept to themselves. Jesus hadn't yet told them that they are not the only special ones. So she's freaked out that this man, first of all, and Jewish man, second of all, wants to talk to her. So when Jesus asks her for water, she's genuinely confused about the interaction. And that's when Jesus shares this mystery with her that he is the living water that no one will ever run dry from. And she's super interested in this water. She's like, oh, give me this water, then I don't have to come back to this well every day. She doesn't get it. She's like, great, this is perfect. And I imagine Jesus chuckled to himself at that point. And then he comes in with the zinger, go get your husband. He responds, I have no husband. He goes, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Side note, people are often very quick to judge this woman for having five marriages and now living with someone who isn't her husband, but women didn't have control of their lives back then. And we have zero reason to believe that she has control over her current situation. People are quick to slut-shame her, but slow, very slow, to ask about the circumstances that made her life so tragic. Jesus didn't care about any of that. He was just pleased that she told him the truth. So this is where that magic moment happens, because it clicks with her that she is at least in the presence of a prophet. And that's what she says, My ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which is actually where the Samaritans built a temple. But you, you say, the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem, where their temple is. And then Jesus disrupts all of it by saying this. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such a worship to him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And then he reveals himself as the Messiah to her. And she leaves to tell everyone she sees about Jesus. And I have no doubt that generations of people know Jesus because of her testimony. And this is the first time in all of Scripture that Jesus reveals himself to someone as the Messiah. And in addition to revealing himself as the Messiah, he also breaks down what it means to follow him and what it means to worship now. Worshippers will no longer have to go to the temple on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. Worshippers will now only need one drink from the well of living water to worship and commune with God. And who does Jesus want to worship him? First, he wants the outcasted Sumerian woman at the well by herself. And then he wants everyone else. The upside-down kingdom arrived with him. And Jesus made it possible for our worship to be intimate, 
so intimate that we're sitting at a well with him. We no longer needed a connector to get to God. That was the point. We just needed to put him first. True worshipers worship the Spirit in, in truth, worship the Father in spirit and in truth, through communion with God and through following his guide for our lives. And unfortunately, I think we often inherit this temple hangover that we just can't shake. Our denominations inherit it as well, by tacitly making some people seem holier than others. As if pastors and directors and leaders in any church have some kind of VIP access card to a separate holy place with the Lord. No. Maybe that was factually true in the Old Testament. But... If our church believes that Jesus is who he says he was and that he lived and died and rose again to rid us from separation from God, then we also must believe that we are now the temple and that worship is our mother tongue. If we're waiting for someone else to connect us to worship, we're going to be waiting a long time. Worship is for the here and now and also for the there and later. It's no longer a place but a state. So why do we do it? Exactly because of that C.S. Lewis quote, the second one. Can you pull it up again? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is the appointed consummation. It is not out of a compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In the same way, we delight to praise God because our praise of Him not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. That's when he got it. When worship was no longer this awkward request and instead an internal desire. We worship what we love. We do. How do we show love to those around us? Just like this, right? We want to praise them. We want to spend quality time with them. We want to praise their name in front of other people. We want to give them good gifts. We want to affirm them. And when we think something is also really great, we want others to know about it and think it's really great too because we just can't not share about it. Do you have any idea how excited I get when people tell me they like vegan food? Do you have any idea? I want to share it with everybody. Brings me joy. And even silly things, for the life of me, for the past two weeks, I cannot stop talking about this watermelon overnight mask that I'm using. And I want to tell everybody. So if y'all are interested, see me after service. I'll give you the details. It's so good. But that's what it is. We overflow. Our worship cannot be contained. We worship what we love. But here's the thing, I think if we really, I mean really, understood the power and the glory of the Lord, we would never have to ask why we worship, because worship would be the lens in which we see everything. We all want to go to heaven, don't we? What do you think we're going to do there? Who do you think it's for? We've created this false narrative that heaven is a really fancy spiritual retirement. But when well-meaning people do that, they don't realize it, but they're making heaven all about them. You know what our great reward in heaven is going to be? It's going to be able to be in the presence of God for eternity. That's our reward. That's the purpose of heaven, to be with the one that we love forever. When we truly understand the gravity of the Lord, worshiping is all we will want to do for eternity. 
That's why we do it, because His love is so great for us that even though our love could never match His, we're going to spend every day on this earth trying to love Him back. We worship, we love, because He first loved us. And I am convinced there are only two types of people in the world, those who know they are loved and those who haven't figured it out yet. And once you figure it out, once you know that you are deeply loved by the creator of the universe, your worship will not be contained. So how do we do it? Well, Psalm 156 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's not, let everything that knows every Hillsong song praise the Lord. Let every breath, I love Mason Hillsong, don't, not knocking them, don't worry. Everything that has breath. Our whole lives are to be an ongoing act of worship to God. It's not just about knowing a few songs or reciting a few Bible verses. And I know deeply that worship is more than just singing on Sunday because I will never be allowed to serve on the band, so it has to be. (laughs) Discussing all the different expressions of worship would take an entire sermon series. So instead of trying to rush through a list of the different ways in which we worship, I want to spend just a few minutes talking about two expressions of worship so we have some tangible perspective of what worship looks like. And those two things are praise and service. Praise, and by that I mean singing songs to the Lord, which is typically often noted as the worship part of the service, which is wrong. The entire service is a worship service. It's only one worship part of the service. Just like our lives, everything we do here on Sunday is for worship the teaching, the fellowship, the communion table, the giving, all worship, all putting God first. But that's not to discount singing songs of praise at all. When the entire room is singing praises to God, sometimes I'm so overwhelmed I just stop singing to sit in awe in the beauty that is happening all around me. Worship in regard to music is something that I connect with closely, despite having zero gifting in that department. God's funny. Um... But in writing this sermon, I I had a major come-to-Jesus moment for myself. Now, if you know me, you may know this not-so-popular fact about me. I don't really like hymns. And by that I mean I don't like most of them. Uh, And so because I connect so much during the music portion of service, when a hymn is in the lineup, and because I can't fake anything... I will come out of my worship experience sometimes and just sing. Or even worse, I've been known to take a bathroom break or go get water during those songs. The one thing I can give the Lord, worshiping with my life, even during a time when everyone else around me is worshiping in song, I say, oh my goodness, the song is lame, i got to (laughs) go. I make the one gift I can give the Lord about me. That's not worship. That's me saying, this song doesn't fill me, so I'm going to go take a break. So selfish. These songs aren't about me at all. These songs aren't about how good they make me feel. The purpose of singing songs to the Lord is to bring my praise to Him, and not so I can hope to get some kind of Holy Spirit contact high from the person next to me. It's all about Him. And I know not everyone deeply connects to God through music, but we are all called to praise. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And even if you don't feel completely called to worship God via music, I I guarantee, I absolutely guarantee, there are people in this church 
who have internal conflicts every moment when our service is focused on music because they know what they want to do. They do, but they don't allow themselves to do it. If there's something your body wants to do during the praise portion of our service, be it kneeling or even stopping to pray or lifting your hands or shouting praises, but you don't allow yourself to do it, then the worship that is happening is towards the people around us, not God. The song portion of our worship service is only for one mighty being. And if we make it about ourselves or anyone else, we are not worshiping him. If we came here to worship him, it shouldn't matter who else is in the room, or even more what they think of how we worship. Every time we sing praises as a community, we are practicing for what we will do for eternity. It's a glimpse of a small part of heaven. Revelation 4, 8-11 through 11 talks about this in the sense that in the throne room of God, there are angels surrounding him, and they are constantly, 24 hours a day, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then around there, there are 24 elders who bow down. Heaven is about worship for eternity. Our words and songs of praise will never stop ceasing. That's heaven. And God doesn't need our praise. But man, does he delight in it. He also delights in our service. To worship God is to serve him. There's this quote by Oswald Chambers that says, Many people think that God can't use them where they are, but it's certain that God can't use them where they aren't. Right? So start moving. Many people overcomplicate what it means to serve as worship and think that they need to be doing one thing to please God, or better, as Chambers wrote, they feel like they haven't found that one thing, and so instead they do nothing. Haven't found my calling. Please, pick up the Bible. Look around you. Serve the needs of those around you. Service is two, th- two things. It's following the example of Jesus as he showed us what servanthood looked like throughout his entire ministry and caring for the immediate needs of those around us. But it's also using the unique giftings we have to glorify the Lord. 1 Peter 4, 10-11 says, Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Everything we do should glorify him. All of our actions. Serving others for immediate needs or through our giftings is not just to fulfill the need. It's to bring people closer to the Lord. It's an opportunity for people to wonder about these Christians. Every act of service is an opportunity to make his name known. And we can serve. We can do things. But if we're not based in love, if we're not based in worship, that's, it's not it. Then you're just a, a moral person. Good for you. Worship is different. Worship is deeper. Worship is saying, I see a need, and I know that I can make the start to fulfill it. But better yet, I know who can fully fulfill it. Every act of service we do in this broken world is an illustration that we know the fixer. And when we feel broken ourselves, we go back to that well. We go back to the source. John 13, 35 says that they will know that you are my disciples by your love. 
by your love. That's it. Many people can serve, but if our acts of service are based on our own ego and not because we know the source of life, joy, and everlasting goodness, then it's not worship. If we constantly feel drained from serving instead of filled from it, we got to go back to the source. This October will mark six years of me being at the Table Church. Six years. And throughout my years of leadership here, I can pinpoint seasons when I was ready to walk away from it all. And not because it was a good season to leave or God had another opportunity for me. It was just that I was done. Because I was tired. And I was burnt out. And when I, when I look back on those seasons, I know they were seasons when I was dry myself. When I was doing everything on my own energy, on my own ego. And I was ready to be done because I wasn't pulling from the source. My acts of service were good, but they were not worship. When we serve from that way, that route is just a dead end. And when we have drained Christians walking around, it's impossible for us to share living water with others because we don't have any to share. Service is a very important part of worship. But if it's not because of our love for the one who called us, we've got to go back to the well. And then you'll see how different serving is. You'll see what a joy it brings you to be able to share a bit of the love God has so graciously given you. And then you can continue to serve because that well never runs dry. That's the thing about God. There's always more. Always more. So as we're worshiping from the well that never runs dry, what happens to us? What happens to us when we worship, when we do it? We remember and we increase. I heard a church leader say that every time we are worshiping God, we remember. And it's so true. That's why our hearts explode when we realize something new as we read scripture. That's why we feel so on fire singing. That's why we get that special kind of love high when we know we stepped in and became the hands and feet of Jesus for someone. As we worship with our minds, mouth, and action, our hearts get a little glimpse of what this is all actually about. And as we enter that space, the Lord responds by saying, Remember? I know it's hard because we are born into sin and we live in a broken place. But that feeling that happens within us when we are worshiping with our lives is an indication that although none of us have ever seen Eden, we know what it feels like. Because at our core, we were created to be with God and there is a longing for Eden in all of us. So every time we sing praises, every time we serve on his behalf, every time we read these words of truth and those unexplainable feelings come over us, the Spirit whispers to us, you remember, don't you? I know you do. Stay with me here a little longer. I have more for you. You can't see it, but you can feel it. He's still there. We were created to worship our God. We are from love for love. Our intrinsic desire to worship God is so strong that it can only be buried and not destroyed. Even for those who don't acknowledge the presence or power of the Lord. There's this really cool story in the book of Mark, in Mark chapter 4. Uh, Jesus was speaking to a crowd so large 
in the beginning uh, of the chapter that he had to actually get on a boat because there were too many people on the shore. He couldn't see them all. So he goes on this boat, and he's preaching. It's awesome, telling all these wonderful parables. People are, you know, in awe and stunned. The crowd leaves. He gets back on the boat, and he goes, I want to go to the other side. And the other side was the other side of the city. And so they had to travel by boat because it was a group of ten cities that were connected. And they go to the other side. And on their way to the other side is that famous story where... Jesus is sleeping, and his disciples panic because there's a storm. He wakes up, and he's like, what's wrong with all of you? That's, they're on their way to this little place. And, of course, they arrive to the place that Jesus wanted to go to, and he, he gets off the boat, and he goes onto the shore, and there's this, this man that he sees coming towards him, only one man coming towards him. And uh, it's a man who lives in the tombs, and the tombs were were only for evil spirits or people who were possessed by evil spirits. And so he, this man who lived in the tombs, who was full of chains, chains that could not hold him down, but just sat on him now because he was too strong, that he saw him from afar and he came to Jesus. And he came down immediately seeing Jesus and he bows. Remember, bowing is that piece of worship from the Hebrew word. He bows and he says, what will you have of me? And Jesus is telling the demons to get out of this man. And the demons say that their name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is a Roman military word, meaning thousands of units. There are thousands of demons in this man. Thousands. What, what will you do? Please, please. If you're going to make me leave here, let us go to the pigs. And Jesus sends them to the pigs. And immediately after he sends the spirits to the pigs, this man is healed. The people in the town at this point, a crowd is gathered, they are so freaked out by this, they actually ask Jesus to leave. They're like, this is too weird, get out of our town. Because they can't believe that they saw a man who they have pushed to the tombs. He's not even a part of society. They've pushed him to the tombs, is now sitting there, healed. Just like that, from one interaction with Jesus. Couldn't believe it. This man was so in awe of our Jesus that he asked to go with him. And instead, Jesus said, no, no, go praise my name to your friends. And I guarantee generations of people know Jesus because of that demonic man. Now, there's a few things to note here. Jesus had just preached to a giant crowd of people, so big he had to be in a boat. And then he decides to go to a place, not with a crowd, but with one. He knew that man would be waiting for him on the shore, and he went anyway. Just one man. And also... When the man met Jesus, his body, despite being consumed by demons, thousands of demons, ran and bowed to him. Now demons, demons, they, they must acknowledge God, but they can't worship God. They can't. It's against their intrinsic nature. So the demons are talking. The man is bowing. Despite being consumed by demons, his spirit so longs for the Lord that he runs and bows. That's how deeply we were created to worship. The spirit that longs for Eden can be buried but not destroyed. For anyone who loves someone who is suffering um, from what in all ways looks like a demonic takeover, uh, and you could seemingly name thousands of things that are not of the Lord happening in their lives. This should give you hope. It gives me hope. For the entirety of my life, 
I've known someone who continues to suffer from demons of many kinds and who doesn't even call herself a Christian anymore. But her spirit so longs for communion with God that for the life of her, she can't get praise songs out of her head like Jehovah Jireh, a song that she hasn't heard since she was in grade school. She wakes up to it. She hears it all day. Her, Her spirit so longs for communion with God that despite the fact that she daily does things to destroy her brain, she can recite entire chapters of scripture from memory. Her spirit so longs for communion with God that despite having zero control over her life, she still feels a duty of service to her little sister to protect her. Buried, but not destroyed. The thing about pulling back those layers that block our spirit from worshiping God and remembering our first love is that the love that is found as we worship him has no limits. And the more we increase our worship, the larger our hearts become in return. Our hearts just get bigger. That's how it works. And wouldn't it just be like the Lord to do that, right? The one thing we can give him, the one thing he can't do for himself, worship him. He gives us a gift in return. We come to him with our worship, and he responds by making our hearts bigger and bigger and bigger. There is no limit. And we know God makes our hearts bigger every time we worship him. We know this because of how it changes us. After we leave a prayer meeting all filled up, after we tangibly serve as the hands and feet of Jesus, we are high with joy, walking out of here. We're just a little bit kinder for the first few moments we leave church, right? With all of the frustrations that are waiting for us outside that door. That's God making our hearts bigger. The more we worship him with our lives, the more we understand him because the more we become like him. That's what the practice of worship does. And God says, you remember, don't you? I know you do. Now stay here with me longer. I have so much more for you. But just on the opposite side, after we leave that meeting, after we're done volunteering, after we've walked past the first few frustrations on 14th Street, the world is going to do everything it can to keep us from that worship. It is. That's why worship can't be just a song. That's why worship can't be just on Sundays. That's why remembering to pray once a week isn't going to do anything for us. If we've been walking with the Lord for many years and our relationship hasn't grown, it is not a problem of connection. It's a problem of lack of worship. God is there. He's waiting to connect with us at all times. Not on him. Because the Lord is after our hearts, but so is everything else. And the only way to guard our hearts against anything that is not of the Lord is through worship. That's how we guard our hearts. We worship. So, as we leave here today, how do we stay in worship with the Lord? We start with gratitude. We start with saying thank you. My ask of you this week is to start your prayers with a list of gratitude of what the Lord has done in your life, or as I like to call mine, my list of wows. Start there. And if you're already doing that, maybe the praise portion of worship is where your heart needs to extend more gratitude. Maybe the service side of worship is where you need to say thank you so that you can be filled to serve. Whatever area of worship is in need for you, Whatever area of your life 
that you are not worshiping because you do not have any gratitude towards that portion of your life towards the Lord, fix it. If it is lacking, fill it. Whatever it is, we start with a thank you and then we stay there for a little bit longer as we remember. Please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for meeting us here. I thank you that we now get to worship you wherever we are, that we don't need a temple anymore, that you meet us on this stage in these seats at the communion table. Everywhere we are, you are, Lord. I thank you for that, Lord, and I just pray for awareness of that as we leave this place, as we go into our week, awareness of your presence and of your unbelievable love for us. In your name we pray. Amen.